Oh, hi. Hey. Sorry for the delay there. Yeah, it's fine. I was just saying, like, you have a really cool narrator voice. Like, it's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> this works, man. Like, fucking hell. Thank you. You're listening to it. Even listening to it now, I'm like, Jesus. <laughs> I sound like way posher than I am. It's uh, a consequence of my dad um, having delusions of class class M mobility when I was a kid and give me, me, making me do elocution lessons. Um, yeah, you you kind of remind me a, a lot of my uh, actual my housemate, minus the fact of the, the political views, given he's a libertarian. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know you were from Birmingham, of all places. That's... You don't sound like you're from Brum. I'm not from Brum originally, but it's even weirder where I'm actually from. I'm from the northeast of England originally, <laughs> from Newcastle. Yeah, you know what? You just said when you just said that. Now we can hear it a little bit. Is it fine in there? <laughs> a little bit northern. Yeah, I'm from Newcastle originally. Just um, and that's that's that. But yeah, no, I got taught. Um, my dad forced me to do like elocution lessons when I was a kid because he wanted me to sound of a higher social status initially yeah which yeah, yeah. those are a thing okay yeah all right with, with that the way i should probably start the intro and cut off like 15 minutes of this i mean we're gonna have to but yeah you, you start <laughs> the intro man. yeah all right uh hello everybody welcome back to another episode of comrades with comrade nana joined by fellow host saz and today we have protocol on well at least one of the members from protocol on uh, which Protocol is a, a Marxist film writing and culture platform based in Birmingham, England. Big up. The purpose of the project is to provide high quality film content looking at world politics, culture, and economics from a Marxist perspective. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, comrades. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah, I guess uh, so, I have you. Yes. Uh, before we begin, this is something that we ask every guest, but can you tell us where you identify politically and an insight into your own political development? Yeah, no worries. Um, so I only use the word Marxist in most platforms now because I'm, I'm a Marxist-Lenin-ish, I would say. Like, I, I, I agree with Lenin on anti-imperialism, I agree with him on the role of opportunism, and I agree with him on a lot of the roles of the, the Vanguard Party and so on and so forth, but I, I find Leninism is a bit too static to allow a kind of scientific pursuit of certain questions now, um, so I wouldn't go fully into that and I would more identify with just being a Marxist. Um, I would also throw in perhaps um, intending toward being a Grossmanite, who's a very neglected um, comrade who was a Polish Marxist in the sort of during the rise of fascism and all that kind of stuff, who rescued Marx's crisis theory. Um, and there's been a volume of his selected works released like last year, which I'm starting to go through. And the more I'm reading, the more I'm like, holy shit, people need to know about this guy. Um, mm. So that's sort of my tendency. Um, in terms of political development, I was actually politicized during the student movement in response to the cuts in the early 2000s and the Occupy movement. I was initially, like most people who come to Leninism, an anarchist. Um, and yeah, my the kind of questions of opportunism and the questions of um, anarchist disorganisation were what really drew me toward Marxist politics. Um, I remember there's a specific moment I can remember where we were doing a, a protest against workfare, which was um, disabled. Uh, sorry, um, unemployed people have to go and uh, work for their benefits in Britain. And we were doing a protest against that, a bunch of different organisations and groups. And I saw that like one of the big 
bigger kind of three-letter labor lobbies or activist groups in Britain had sort of decided the entire direction of the protest anti-democratically. Um, and that made me sort of think, well, we need to be really organized to combat these people because they just wanted to protest against McDonald's. That, that's what they wanted to do. Um, and seeing that really drew me toward kind of starting to think about the Vanguard Party and that kind of role. Um, yeah, and then from there, I've been through various organizations and here I am now. Yeah, it's really wonderful. Uh, just give it like both me and Saz are Marxist-Leninists as well, or just Marxist as you might have, uh, as we'd like to prefer to our prefer to refer to ourselves but like yeah no it's really cool you know you went a lot of uh mar- people now that just refer to themselves as marxists did go to an anarchist phase but, but me and us didn't we were just like social dem- you know social democrats and then marxists that makes sense just, we never really, you know went to that anarchist phase but yeah the, the anarchist cool. phase sucks i do have to say like like i'm remembering like there was one <laughs> one time we wanted to do a banner drop um, and this was another big breaking moment for me. We wanted to do a banner drop because the the um, the Lib Dems were coming to do their conference in Newcastle, the city I was living um, at the time, my hometown. Um, and we we, 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 we we I went in like two hours before the banner drop, and we had to like wait down the bottom of it because it was going to blow off the bridge otherwise. And no one had done anything, and three of them were high, and two of them had gone out. And I was just like, "Whoa, I'm gonna have to do like the work of five people in two hours." And fuck this! Like that was a big moment for me. So yeah, skipping the anarchist phase is a good good idea. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I concur. I don't, you know, I feel bad shitting on anarchists, but yeah. It's not anarchists in general. It's anarchists in in Britain and America. Um. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't even know if it exists outside the first world. To be completely honest with you, well, uh, well global north. There's a few tendencies. Like um, West Papua has quite a big anarchist movement. Uh, the Zapatistas in Mexico. Yeah, probably mentioned them. Yeah. Um, do the Zapatistas count though as anarchists? I'm not sure they do. I think they did initially. I'm not sure how they identify now. Yeah. All right. They have a hierarchy, more or less. Yeah, that's that's another. And, and like, yeah. I mean, the party is very well structured as well. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure the Zapatistas are fully anarchist. As I say, I, I know that they would have said that they were probably initially, but I don't really know so much about now. Um, I think it's one of those things as well that like. A lot of people who say they're anarchist in principle, like, end up adopting hierarchical structures just because that's how struggle shakes up, shapes up anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes more sense, honestly. We just can't get shit done otherwise. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna say this. I think the anarchist phase is a lot better than a liberal phase, probably. Oh, I can yeah, see I that. Mean, yeah, but like at the same time, though, equally, I think most people just by default. Not, well, not everyone, obviously, because you can't treat them as a monolith. But most people, uh, you know, they might be Marxist. They'll identify as Marxist now, but a lot of them will say, oh, I was a liberal, like most people. Because I was as well, obviously. But um, that changed. <laughs> face. That changed. Yeah, I, I would rather go through my uh, uh, anarchist face than uh, my liberal face that I went through easily. I mean, more I think that the liberal phase... Because I think, I mean, I would have said I would have one, but like the liberal phase is often a depoliticized phase more than anything. Um, yes. 
yeah so much a conscious politic like i've met very few consciously political liberals if that makes sense yes no like what changed for me uh, it, it changed everything really because uh when i went to university and i just because i'm from an area where it's very different to those that i see at university let's just say yeah. and, uh, when i first came back for my university to to brum I just landed at the train station. I came out the train station. I walked down the stairs, and honest to God, this is something that never really truly left me. And it was probably the start of my political and social awakening that led me to question the system more. I just looked around me, and it just dawned on me. And I was like, "Holy shit! I live in poverty." It, it literally, honestly, it just dawned on me. I looked around. I just saw like a random Eastern European dude smoking pot, and like a fucking homeless dude lying on the steps of the train station and i was looking around me because i you know where i was living at university was completely different it was like night and day because poverty looks normal basically yeah I was just, it was just completely normalized to me and i was you know i was completely desensitized to my reality and where i was living obviously i never really struggled as others did during like the height of austerity under the the tory lib dem coalition government and it, i mean you know, probably I did, but as a kid, I didn't realize. But once I went to university and I came back for the first time to my hometown and I looked around where I was living, that truly never left me. And that was really the start of my political and social consciousness. And yeah. It's a kind of similar thing. Like, uh, it's like certain areas of Newcastle are just completely post industrial burnt out estates with like nothing on them. And then. Yeah, I've seen Newcastle. Yeah. And they're pretty to look at. And then, like, you go to the university, which is, like, only... It's a really small city, so it's only, like, a mile away. And then you see, like, all these nice gourmet sandwich places and stuff, and it's it's really quite stark. <laughs> that was That's something that I think, from the northeast, you kind of get a very... It's less segmented than a lot of places because it's smaller, and you can... I think a lot of people see the wealth inequalities quite a lot more. Um within that region um but yeah no i can, I can imagine i understand like the normalization of poverty is like one of those things that's really stark for a lot of people like leaving hometown is something that's really big for sparking p- political kind of awakenings and so on well yeah yeah 100 yeah so uh i just on protocol um what compelled you to create it and can you give us an insight behind the visual style and political messaging within each video yeah um so protocol was kind of born out of me moving to brum uh to be honest uh <laughs> so i moved to brum from from newcastle after getting out of a really really shitty job where i was doing marketing um i had in that process kind of split with some political tendencies that i've been organizing with before then um for a number of reasons that probably best not to go into um but yeah i split from that and i was sort of a bit politically homeless at that point i didn't really know what i was gonna do um i've been trying to write for quite a while um and i met alex who couldn't make it today uh but me and her were talking quite a lot and yeah essentially we agreed to do a joint project um initially we wanted to do kind of a left-wing arts stuff trying to do a film a horror film on the housing crisis was our initial idea um but we just like there's no money um we had no money to do it and we realized yeah this is going to be impossible unless we 
like devote hours and hours of our lives without any income whatsoever to like going around Birmingham and trying to get persuade people to be in a horror film, which we didn't think we hey, would. Uh, do you mind if I interject? You, go on. Uh, did, you, did you have a background in this before? Um, like, like this one? So I, 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 I've done writing and stuff before. Um, I've been, I've written in a number of like left newspapers in the past. I've written, so journalism, I've done short stories, I've done scripts and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I was working, as I say, I was working in a really shitty marketing job before uh, yeah. starting Prodicut as well. Um, never work for the petty bourgeoisie, they're worse. Um, <laughs> uh, um, Alex has a background in like wedding um, videos for people. Right. She's got a right. good background in filming and in editing. Um, and then, so that kind of all happened. Um, we met We met up, we agreed to do like arts projects. We did a couple of video poems, which are the first things on the channel. And then through all this, the Skripal stuff was happening in Britain. And from that, I, we kind of constructed this analysis of great power competition um, and thought like, no one's really talking about this. No one's kind of talking about the fact that like imperialism's adrift in probably the worst crisis in its history, um, and that seems really strange. And so that's when we sort of decided maybe we should do documentaries, and did uh, histories marching from that. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how it all got started. Um, are there any kind of do you want any clarifications or questions on that before I kind of go on the writing processes? Yeah, just to expand, uh, in one of the docu- documentaries, uh, Camps of Dependence, where you argue pretty succinctly how the British government under Boris Johnson and Co. have essentially carried out a eugenicist campaign to cut off the to cut off the elderly and disabled population, and anyone who's looked at COVID nineteen and the deaths in Britain. To just know that it's disproportionately affected certain demographics, and in this case, in the in the the video in question, we look at the elderly and the disabled. But to those who don't really comp- are completely on board with the characterization that this is a eugenicist campaign, can you just elaborate further and just dispel this and once and for all to show, like, yeah, the British government and this. And whilst doing so, can you also explain the links between how capitalism views the disabled or those it deems expendable essentially as well yeah um so like that we use the word eugenics really pointedly as a political intervention um there are a few processes going on but it's quite clear in terms of the process of death in particularly care i think which is why we 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 sort of focus in on that where you had before the pandemic had even really gotten started in britain the British government booked thousands of beds uh, in care homes across Britain. Um, Mm. And so it booked out all these beds. And then in the first wave of the pandemic, we saw over 20,000 patients transferred from hospitals into these beds within care homes um, without COVID tests, or some even with positive COVID tests. So they had the virus definitively and they were still discharged. Um, At the same time as that, we saw like... Um, mass denials of care uh, so like loads and loads of people just absolutely refused healthcare mostly disabled and elderly people in a so the criteria for that was done on a, f- a so-called frailty scale and if you w- ranked five or above you could be denied critical care and like a ranking of five is like you need assistance getting public transport you need assistance with your finances and so on it's like really basic kind of things that 
a lot of people have difficulties with, like not even people who I would say are like severely impaired, but people who maybe even just have mild anxiety could be impaired to this degree on some levels. Um, and obviously that applies quite overwhelmingly to disabled and elderly people. And so we saw a lot of people deny critical care um, in a context where there were beds empty still in these places as well. Um, and then a lot of people transferred into care homes. Um, then we had GP surgeries uh, writing out do not attempt resuscitation notices for en masse for whole care homes and things like that. And that means like just if they if they need CPR, don't give them it. Um, normally that's a medical decision that should be taken with a patient. So that's an end of life decision which you would take with a patient where you think that being resuscitated is going to like decrease your quality of life to such an extent that it's going to be like agonizing. Um, and but here it was applied on mass, and so we see. And then all, alongside that, we also see GPs not going into care homes as much. Um, and the way that the lockdown has functioned, um, because the the British government has been sending COVID nineteen patients into care homes, then like there isn't a lockdown, right? It's purely social segregation. It's blocking people off from the outside world. And that has caused, over the first wave, that caused a further 10,000 at least deaths from the worsening of dementia. So that's a, a considerable number of, of people. I think it's 40,000 deaths that we're, we're talking about early on in the pandemic. Um, and then we see today, you know, we've gotten to this point where the second wave has happened and the, even though there was a law put in place after care homes challenged the transfer of COVID-19 patients, uh, the way that the COVID Act is structured means that local councils uh, and, and, and different funding bodies can deny care homes um, funding services. Uh, and that, so, that, that make it, so they've been using that to threaten uh, care homes which have refused COVID-19 patients and forced them into taking them. Um, that has now we've gotten subsequently even worse um and it's now like you have to take COVID 19 patients is pretty much the law again and so we have this process and we're at a point now where just care homes who are 0.67 percent of the population in britain account for 40 percent of the hundred uh, the hundred thousand death toll that we saw towards the beginning of this year so it's fucking horrible. Um, that is more elderly people than were killed by the Nazis in the Blitz for context. Uh, so more more of that generation have been killed by the British government than have been killed by the Nazis when they were of the so-called greatest generation. So that's, that's the in-care stuff. But then we've also seen disabled people who rely upon... Uh, in-home care that has been cut off so even uh, in a lot of contexts so we've seen that working to isolate people further to starve them to death and also that's why we have a death toll statistic in total of 60% of COVID deaths in Britain are of disabled people who make up 19% I think is of the population Yeah. Um, so again we have this huge massively inordinate death toll there um the way that has also served is the denial of care has also served to force more people into care homes as well because they can't survive without the in-home care so they've had mm. no option which means that even though we've seen i think it's roughly 10 percent of the care homes population like killed by covid19 through this process 
the care home population has risen um, through this, which means that the extent of disabled people being forced into these care homes, which are operating essentially as, as we say in the film, death camps, um, mm. it has risen considerably. Now, the reason we would say eugenics is because although that's often associated with primarily race uh, politics, and that is still true, it also applied equally to disabled people um, in its initial kind of usage. So you see that through a lot of kind of British eugenicists that they have kind of prioritised attacking disabled people, most famously actually in our context, well, perhaps not famously, but should be most famously, uh, Keynes and Beveridge, uh, the two architects of the state welfare in Britain, were eugenicists and believed in 100% employment, the implication being that disabled people wouldn't exist. Um, so you have this huge kind of process there. Um, so we use it very clearly because there's a clearly concentrated program of murder happening there. You don't send COVID-19 patients into care homes, the place where you want to you know, shield the most, um, stop people from dying and then continue to lock them up so they can't visit their family so that dementia concerns worsen at the same time as not really increasing the funding and allowing the funding to be withdrawn and all these other things. That's not a, a, that's a, that's a conscious program, programmatic response, um, which is transforming the care home into a site of annihilation. Um, it also essentially plays upon the other point you wanted me to go into, which is the... Uh, the nature of disabled people's oppression, which is so in under this disability is a un it has impairment and so on have existed before capitalism, but yeah. disability as a relationship of oppression hasn't. Um, so what disability is is a relationship to the means of production. So the ordinary worker sells their labour time to the capitalist um, and has to increase their productivity, increase the speed of their work, and so on and so forth which means that the more productive labour is viewed as or is, then the more likely it is to be bought by the capitalist in the form of employment. Disabled people have always had the view, have always been viewed as unproductive by the capitalist system and so are only ever brought into employment where, where it's possible because of higher kind of composition of capital or due to certain historical conditions. And so gen the general relationship of disabled people's oppression is in people with impairments, people with mental health problems, are excluded from capitalist employment on the basis of like their bodies or it's like sort of they're a bit on the, well on the in, under the capitalists on the basis of their view that they're not productive and so that leads to this huge relationship of exclusion um, as kind of the, the labor system is the only way for dispossessed working class people to survive um, most of the time, again, we have certain things like state welfare now, um, yeah. increasingly less though, um, and that arose from a very specific historical moment. Initially, that leads to people being forced into things like workhouses, which are the archetype for the care home, because the, the workhouses housed everyone who was excluded by capital. So we're talking um, orphaned children, alongside elderly people, alongside disabled people, were forced to live in these uh, institutions that were run charitably by churches and so on and so forth. Um, that then led to the care industry as those were segmented off and turned into productive things uh, 
under capitalism productive things where people were paid to maintain these things and there was a source of profit there. But again, it's never been particularly profitable. And so people are essentially excluded um, from production and then they have to survive either from the goodness of people they know in their social sphere or from these kind of institutions which are terribly resourced and operate as prisons. So that the the COVID-19 pandemic has succeeded that kind of relate um, has succeeded in transforming that relationship of exclusion into one of annihilation. We say eugenics because we want to argue that specifically this government is conscious in that and has conscious eugenicist politics toward disabled people and you can see that in terms of Boris Johnson's uh, belief that people with lower IQs um, so learning disability has been one of the biggest hit demographics, it's worth noting. And Boris Johnson believes that people with lower IQs are like doomed to be um, poverty stricken. And that is a natural order of things that shouldn't change. Um, and he said that quite clearly in a speech at the th um, in memory of Margaret Thatcher. I can't remember Yuck. the date, but Yuck. so does that answer the question? Yeah. That kind of go through yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very insightful. Uh, very, very sad as well. Honestly, it's pretty, pretty fucking grim. Like what just, you know, the events you just described. I'm not yeah. gonna lie. I, I, I had no idea it was this yeah. bad. I, yeah, yeah. at all. It's, it's absolutely horrifying. It's one of those things that I think most of the left kind of doesn't bother with um, as well and I hate to be kind of blunt on that but it's one of those things that like we see most of the discussion now from not just the kind of usual culprits among the social democratic left but also among communists the discussion about care is a discussion about like workers conditions and care which are obviously important but the workers in care exist within an oppressive binary disabled people of which are the other half right like yeah. you can't have employment and care unless you have an oppressed disabled population um, yeah. so that dialogue is is really limited and doesn't help you see even then that kind of 60 percent of the people who've died in the pandemic um have been disabled most people rationalize that through one of two ways at the moment i've found the first of which is we need to lock down harder without observing the fact that the lockdown has never been a lockdown for disabled people and particularly the care care homes um, and has been concomitant with their di increasing dispossession and uh, abandonment and then on the other hand you have the viewpoint that the fact the idea that these people have died in such overwhelming numbers proves that the virus is not deadly to anyone else when actually it's a manufactured social condition so people are viewing it through their kind of preconceived biases of whether lockdown or not lockdown is the fundamental question here rather than actually analyzing the material conditions which give rise to these problems um and and like fully grasping how bad that is and i think it's such a blind the fact that it's such a blind spot is really revealing because it shows that you i mean i don't think that you can have an analysis of the covid19 pandemic without an analysis of disability frankly um yeah you know i uh, yeah that's a great analysis actually yeah so just uh, just on the left uh, i was just thinking about another one of your feature length documentaries that i watched recently called we demand tomorrow and i highlight this one in particular because today 
is, is the birthday of Rosa Luxemburg, who was born on this day 150 years ago. And in her own time, or lifetime, she said that it's socialism or barbarism. And we're at a point now where essentially the climate crisis is needs to be stopped or it will cause irreversible damage to our planet. And how is it that we go about that right we either dismantle capitalism or we all fucking die because you have people on the on the so-called left like these opportunists within Britain <coughs> Owen Jones <coughs> Paul Mason you know just spouting a lot of shit even this dude right who I believe is an environmentalist George Monibo I don't know if I pronounce his surname correctly he works for The Guardian and he says oh I'm an anti-capitalist but I'm not a communist like dude you're a literal environmentalist you know we don't destroy mm-hmm. capitalism. We're all gonna fucking die. Uh, and in, in that documentary, you again argue very succinctly that the, the historic necessity of socialism slash communism. Uh, and ha- the question I propose to you is: How do we go about showing people as well, like that this is uh, something that we need to do? Because many uh, on the left are now describing the COVID crisis as almost like the final breakdown of capitalism. And, um, you know, is that something you subscribe to as well? And if so, can you elaborate further on what that means and what it possibly entails? So uh, I think I'll take those questions in reverse order then. So the final breakdown point. COVID isn't the final breakdown of capitalism. COVID is a symptom of the environmental crisis, which is itself a symptom of the breakdown of capitalism. The final breakdown of capitalism is something a crisis that has been building since the 1970s um where the rate of profit has historically been lowered to around zero now um that is a process that's been building for decades covid has sort of pricked a balloon um and let loose a number of those social evils that have been held back by numerous different measures primarily um increasing violence in the oppressed world And so the final breakdown is something that we are living through. But what is meant by that isn't sort of synonymous with a single financial crisis, but a number of different historical processes where the productive relationships of capitalist society are going to break down um, over time. And we can't say how long that will take. COVID has sped it up enormously um, and has made it much more visible to a lot of people, which is, is good. Um, in some, well, it's not good, um, but it, it's useful that people are aware now. Um, that could take a considerable period of time because, you know, the, an uns- we need to understand that when social systems break down, they do so not like all at once, but different productive relationships stop to stop functioning. So the collapse of the care sector is one example of a social relationship ceasing to function um, in any kind of way that it mm. and And that can take place in a number of ways. We're seeing that um, starting to hit food production quite badly over the last sort of few weeks where we've got inflation forcing up the price of food in particularly the oppressed world by huge amounts like tofu went up by 40% in Indonesia in like two weeks um and so that's that's quite hit quite badly as well in terms of kind of i think it's easy easy to see it visually as well uh, during uh the pandemic uh if you understand what i mean like when you walk outside like i keep telling nana that um uh, this is like when, when you're outside 
during a lockdown it's a bit like hell yeah. like capitalist hell in a way where like you see all these like you know 50% off uh, you know all these all these shops saying 50% off but nobody can go in them and they're all boarded up and it's everything's closed it just feels like you're living in hell at this point yeah. like the whole lockdown situation in a pandemic to me it kind of looks like the sale at the end of the world you know the, the closing down sale at the end of the world <laughs> um, um it's a very strange visual thing like seeing like at the start of the pandemic seeing uh cities like completely emptied of people it's just there's a rule in architecture that you're never meant to show a design without people in it because it's creepy right it doesn't look nice it looks horrible yeah. um and that's what we've seen and i think it's become like really visible um what i think it has unfortunately allowed the capitalist class to try and do though is argue that the economic crisis is covid's fault rather than a contradiction within the system um which covid has unleashed cuz like whilst production has shut down in quite a direct way a number of times through covid we've not it was the the kind of huge problems that they've had in terms of um you know unemployment gathering and all these kind of other tendencies were tendencies that were already there and so when they kind of say oh it's covid i think they're try that like that they're kind of trying to hold back a wave of anger against the system i don't think that will work though because there will be a post covid period hopefully um and nothing's gonna be better <laughs> uh yeah no that's true uh, i i i was going to say like you can't just brush away 2008 like it never happened like the effects of the great recession you can't just uh pretend it was because of covid yeah and 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 more or less and now we've got a situation where like we had uh stocks fall faster than at any point in the great depression and you know that's been sort of stopped temporarily but we're going to see government debt start to default huge currency breakdowns inflation in food as i was saying um and you know and and, and the unemployment that's been created isn't going to go away but furlough is um so it's going to be really really brutal frankly um it's just but at the moment everything's been done to kick the economic can down the road um rather than to like actually sort out the crisis because they can't um but yeah uh, to come on to the final break i do think we're starting to live through the final breakdown how long it will take is a question that isn't easy to answer though um you reckon we're prepared though cuz uh, the, the more i like the more i've i at least in this country the more i sort of gauge with people and talk to people it doesn't seem like it it just seems like more more of hoping the government of the status quo will fix itself and i don't think the left is prepared per se at least not my party at least not the uh the left that i follow i'm i'm not sure we're prepared to do anything about it i mean how, how do you gauge this we're definitely not um in a position to deal with it yet um for a number of reasons right so everything that did exist was destroyed um following the collapse of the soviet union and the failure of the miners strike in britain um so any proletarian right. organizing yeah. we did have left was destroyed um there are organizations and things that i would say are good organizations in this country now 
um, but they're small. They're all essentially the size of a study group, really. Um, and trust me, I know. Trust me. Yeah, it's really grim. The the thing is, though, what we will see is an increase in the number of dispossessed and angry people. So we're not ready, but the only thing we can do is really study, really try to get to grips with the politics that we need to influence things, because there will be an explosion of rage, and it's about what direction that goes in, really, yeah. more than anything. Oh, okay, on that point, I just want to expand a little bit. So right now, a lot of people are pretty angry with the Labour Party, but like their anger isn't really being funneled in any kind of... Um, in, in any kind of way that directly challenges electoralism like no one's really organizing outside the labor party like they realize that it's it's awful right because they could see that it's there's a pretty the 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 distinctions so to speak uh are pretty minimal right between labor and conservative but when it comes to election day these, these same people who aren't adamantly angry either they still vote for the labor party or and they don't really do any kind of organizing outside of it. So how do we go about in um, ensuring this? Yeah, but isn't, no, no, isn't that, that just sounds like a perennial problem in the Western left because the Democrats are exactly like that. And we saw what happened when uh, the BLM protest happened. Like the people who are ahead yeah, of the left no, no, in dude, America. The point I'm trying to make is like the resistance that is coming, right? Because of the misery, that's pretty inordinate. How is it that we go about funneling it towards our ends? Because the fascists, you know, they're going to come and they're going to talk to these pretty angry and dispossessed people and they're going to try and bring them in. So that's what I mean. I'm not sure. I'm not sure the left is like fully engaged or prepared. I, I'm not sure. No, At least from my Fascism end. does have a tendency to produce the most narcissistic pieces of shit imaginable. And there's a lot of infighting produced through that in itself. So yeah, no. The question. I mean, the fascist project. The so, fascist project can't economically work. Like yeah. that's the key thing here. The fascist project can't economically no. work. It doesn't mean it won't be tried. We can still definitely lose to these people, but it will just. It's just another path to extinction, right? Like, that's that's the key thing that we need to be highlighting to people is that the the economic necessity of getting rid of this system the the material necessity of getting rid rid of this system that's the key point um, because everything else kind of leads to the same path now the left isn't ready to do that um, I disagree slightly that it's the same as the Democrats in the US yeah. though and I think I would suggest that the Labour Party in Britain does have more of a basis in the working class than the Democrats doesn't make it positive it's a privileged section of the working class that yeah. dominates our politics but it's still a section of the working class whereas the democrats are less the based right than that just, just let that sink in they're like they're they're to the right of the tories and the republicans are fascists yeah like no the, you know it's i wouldn't that's a pretty i wouldn't say it's a pretty false analogy dude oh no i mean like in terms of uh uh, you know how you said uh, people vote for uh, Labour Party while like wanting change. I would say it's the same in uh, with the Democrats. And like people don't like the progressives yet, they'll still vote for them. You know what I mean? That I, I would yeah, say no, they uh, they're the same in the principle of lesser evilism. But like the, the 
the percentage of people who are voting more and more at the site increasingly it's falling in America to the to the point where if did not vote as a candidate it would have won in a landslide in both 2016 and 2020 which is why you know I really yeah, um, I think like America has like more in both contexts <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's it. I just wanted to say, like, in, in, on that basis, because of like how terrible things are in America, organ, you know, in terms of organizing and other stuff, I feel like they generally have more revolutionary potential than Britain. I think. Well, I don't know. I think that Britain's actually concretely kind of a lot materially worse in some ways. It's it's less spread out geographic we're a smaller country so it's more mingled into different kind of demographics right like in britain like poverty and wealth exist side by side in a lot more close contact than they do in america and so there's an illusion created by that the british are also the most controlled people in the world like there's an index and it says that we are the most we are the most surveilled we are the most docile people in the world um, and that, I think that that holds up in the analysis. You know, Lenin said that the British communists had the Can, hardest... I, can I ask you a question? Yeah, go ahead. Can I ask you a question? Uh, what, uh, like about your point about uh, how wealth and poverty are side by side more in Britain, like in certain places in Britain than in America. Uh, wh- what do you mean by that? I, I always thought America was worse with wealth inequality. Um, not, not particularly. Um, America's a bigger geographical place with much larger population numbers and has a mm-hmm. different kind of geographic spacing of these things right so like in america you have the inner right. city where where poverty stricken people live in britain the city center is the wealth right like that's the wealthiest right. part of the city you also have because it's a smaller country like take birmingham right Birmingham has like wealthy people and middle class people and poverty stricken people living on the same streets sometimes. It's just divided and segmented in such a way that everyone's sort of around each other. Um, you have posh houses like constructed to hide the council estates from the main from the main roads and things like that. But the, 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 geographically they're much closer together than they are in the United States, right? Um, where things are okay. more sort of segmented. That's not true everywhere. Obviously, there's a certain truth to um, certain Tory Tory areas like Kent are much wealthier. Essex is much wealthier, and you know the poverty isn't quite as as crammed in there. But you know you still have a much more kind of or, or the kind of countryside town divide. But you still have proletarian and, and bourgeois kind of people living next to each other a lot more frequently than you do in America. Um, and I think that produces an ideological kind of view that, you know, um, yeah, like that, that, that kind of allows that docility um, to exist um, and form a lot easier. Whereas in the US, it's, it's much, much clearer, like, this is this person's neighbourhood. And you do get that to a certain extent in Britain, but it's in very specific contexts in the larger cities. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I see your point a little bit more now. I mean, it's a geographic okay. thing more than it is a, a class phenomenon, I think. Yeah. Uh, just on America, yeah, because yeah. Uh, it's been, I think, around a month now since Biden got inaugurated as president. 
um where, where do you see the direction that that country is going to take because when the, the you know we saw the fascist storming of the capital which to me really encapsulated what malcolm x said when the chickens have come you know have come home to roost uh because you know america all this kind of violence in the name of democracy to other countries like you know bolivia for one iran you know take your pick there's numerous countries that have uh, experience from the brunt of the american imperialism uh, so like where, where do you think america will go essentially under a biden administration um so if the chickens came home to roost then biden's going to try and chuck them out the coop again um it's essentially what <laughs> i would say like we've seen a kind of already we saw i think it was the second day of his presidency deployed new people into syria we've seen uh, the first strike of the Biden presidency already um we've seen yeah all that kind of stuff um earlier this week he did something that's actually quite worrying we haven't seen this in a while i, I don't know if we have seen this actually in that he th- flew nuclear capable bombers literally at russia's border um across the whole of the western border of russia similarly we saw b52 nuclear armed bombers at iran's doorstep um he may try to be more reconciliatory toward europe um i don't think that's going to work though because we still have uh, sanctions on things like nord stream 2 which is the pipeline between germany and russia um the us has sanctioned that and biden that was a bipartisan maneuver so like biden's going to follow through on that and germany's still very unhappy about that um so i think what we're going to see is just an increase in the us's international aggression frankly because that's the only way he can possibly uh try to bring the petty bourgeoisie to his side which is what he needs to do right um if he's going to be able to hold off kind of republican branded fascism um, I think he's going to manifestly fail at, at creating new social conditions and we're going to see a new Republican government in four years, frankly. Um, and that will be the point at which the US descends into naked dictatorship. Um, because I think that, you know, you see a saying a lot on the online left that, like, nothing will fundamentally change. And what Biden said... Um, or the kind of argument that like the violence of the US is so bad that it can, can't get worse. And I just think that shows a stunning lack of imagination at how much worse things could get, um, frankly. <laughs> yeah. I think people are too comfortable with the status quo that they've had for the last 20 years to actually imagine that things can get much yeah, worse. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of what Thatcher said, uh, there's no alternative, that goal. I mean, I mean, on that note, do you, uh, I kind of wanted to ask, uh, is the Labour Party truly unsalvageable? Is there, is, is it dead, dead for good? Is it a ghost now? So, I mean, like, Labour, polit- f- f- so two points. Uh, politically for us, the Labour Party has always been, in my view, uh, completely and utterly bereft of any use and has served as the principal barrier to revolutionary change in Britain. Um and I'm saying that not from even before the 1945 government, uh, even before that, we saw uh, the Labour Party lead a round of applause in Parliament after uh, Connolly was murdered. Um, 
Arthur Henderson, who was a Labour MP, stood up and started clapping the British Army for shooting James Connolly after the Easter uprising. Um, we saw them open in the 1930s, the first um, the first uh, coalition Labour government helped open um, work camps for the unemployed in Britain. Um, we had work camps for the mm. unemployed in the 1930s where people on the dole were sent to do utterly pointless forestry work. Um, otherwise, they would lose their benefits. They were separated from their families as well. Um, there's a, a number of kind of examples of that. One of them was very close to where um, I grew up in a place called... So I didn't grow up here, but I grew up in a neighbourhood near it, but a place called Wall's End in Newcastle, which uh, was colloquially referred to as World's End um, when it was a when it was a work camp because it was a sewing factory for women and children set up by the Labour Party. Um in the 1945 kind of period, the state welfare, which Labour's so applauded for, was founded on imperialist exploitation of the, the whole globe at a scale that even the Tories hadn't done. Um, we saw the British Army sent to put down striking rubber workers in Malaya. We saw the British Army supporting the French in Vietnam and quelling that. Um, we saw the British Army redouble its exploitation of Ireland and India. And so, you know, that that happened too and then since then they've consistently betrayed us um so from a, a, a proletarian standpoint the labor party has never been a vehicle as a as a vehicle for opportunism it's fragmenting because the labor aristocracy the kind of wealthier section of the working class which is what the labor party has been able to ensure its influence over the workers movement through are starting to be a proletarianized and b lose their political power so the defeat of corbynism was really the mm. defeat of social democracy as a force within the labor party now social democracy has always been imperialist but mm. it has at least been a softer wing of imperialism within the net imperialist nations that is coming to an end and you can see that from starmer's completely anti-democratic pursuits the fact that he this week went further right than the Tories on corporation tax. Yep. Um, you know, a number of things. Um, and the complete uh, cast out of the left. What that will produce is a much more complicated and difficult to deal with opportunism, in my point of view, from my view. Because it's not like Owen Jones is going to lose his platform. He's just going to get sneakier with it. Oh, yeah. You know? Like... The funny thing is... So, so instead of them... Calling, sorry, just, I just want to say on Owen Jones... Go ahead, sir. You can never shit on that guy. <laughs> he wrote a book called The Establishment, and like the irony is, he's part of that establishment. Like, you know, once you look past the uh, the full radicalism, and it's not just him, by the way. You know, you got Paul Mason, Navarro Media, all these opportunists who are just like sheepdogging people back into the Labour Party and back into electoral politics. But that's what we need is complete, rev you know, revolutionary change, essentially. He's still talking about anti-Semitism like yeah. two months ago. Why? Why are we still talking about this? Why are we asking Corbyn to apologize? We still haven't let go. So yeah, Owen Jones is definitely a group. Fortunately, I mean, like the thing about the anti-Semitism thing is that they're trying to portray anti-imperialism as anti-Semitism. Yeah. Like, not just against the Palestinians, but um, but in all anti-imperialist struggles. Um, and so so they can get away with anything they want. Like, categorically, I think we ought to say, like, you know, we oppose anti-Semitism where it arises, but the people who it arises most commonly with are the people actually making the accusations, right? 
like there's been a number of leaks from the Labour Party that show that like Starmer and his circle are deeply anti-Semitic. The view that like Jewish people can't oppose the state of Israel is deeply anti-Semitic. Yep. Like you yeah, know, it conflates the state of Israel uh, with all Jewish people. Is that itself not anti-Semitic? Deeply, deeply anti-Semitic. Um, and like the, the, I mean, the thing is as well, Zionism. The idea that being anti-Zionist is anti-Semitic. Zionism's not a religious viewpoint. It's not a. It's not. It's not. It's not a Judaic belief system. It's a completely and utterly um, removed from that. And so, like, mm-hmm. the equation there is just absurd. Um, you know. Uh, so yeah, I think that, that that's something that has to be said. Um, yeah, in terms of how they're going to get sneaky. Uh, I mean, the entire premise. No, so, sorry, I was just going to say the entire premise is kind of stupid. Like, I think I think the conservatives are a little bit more racist. But we're really talking about Corbyn. I think the whole argument is not one we really need to have, honestly. Uh, in terms of Corbyn being anti-Semitic, I mean. Oh yeah, no, no I think it's it's a bizarre one. Um frankly the the accusation there just it's i mean it's it purely latches onto the idea yeah. that supporting palestine is anti-semitic um in, in corbin corbin had a very yeah, soft support for palestine anyway um you know yeah look so at shadow kind of quite a bizarre one i'm just Sorry, saying i like, look at his what? shadow foreign secretary emily thornberry she was saying a lot of like racist shit and, yeah. yeah yeah no thornberry's all uh, yeah, British British politics is so stagnant now that uh, I, I can't really gauge where it's going. With America, you could sort of make comments about it. Uh, maybe I'm just more in tune with American politics, I'm not going to lie. Um, you can at least say, you know, where it's going, where it's not going. But British politics seems so stagnant to me. Like, you know the, the Conservatives are going to win again over Labour, but... Well, are we gonna have more austerity? Is this gonna, is the status quo gonna be like this for how long? I think it's gonna get shaky soon. Um, in not in parliamentary circles, like the Tories are pretty much gonna be a one-party dictatorship forever now. Um, I think. Yeah. Um, but like, what what we're gonna see is a much a kind of liberal authoritarianism emerge in Britain in the immediate future. Because um, you can see they're clearly going for a kind of red scare thing um, over the last sort of few months with uh, commissioned reports on to, on on the left equating us with the far right. Um, things about um, Extinction Rebellion being extremists and all this kind of stuff. Attempts to ban protest. So we're going to see a much more kind of liberal authoritarianism where people kind of focus in on organisers at protests and things like that. And then we get more harassed than usual. Um, but the only reason they're bringing that in is because I think they're genuinely scared that something's about to pop in Britain. Because, like, people have been ground down for over over decades now. Um, the height of yeah. racism, the height of disabled people's oppression, the height of um, like attacks on living standards are getting so utterly ferocious that people can't survive anymore, and that's only going to increase. Like everything yeah. that's holding it back is stamp the stamp duty freeze um, on housing, 
and the um, fr the furlough, which is going to go this year, um, and all these other things, which are, which are going to come to an end because they cost the government a lot of money and the government doesn't have very much money left. Um, and so that means that we are going to see a huge, I do think, a huge change in politics in the next year or two, I would say. In, like, in, in what shape or form? Uh, you don't have to be specific, just, uh, you know. I think we're like, gonna see, what thoughts? I think we're going to see the start of a new proletarian movement, essentially. Um, how that will do is hard to predict, but I think we're going to see people start to have to organise a lot more ferociously. That people who haven't organised before, people who haven't been sort of tainted by the petty concerns of the petty bourgeois left in this country. Um, and I think we're going to see that start to like actually build into a real movement. Um, so it's about how we respond to that and how we organise around that that can really shape British politics in the future. As, as we said earlier, though, I don't think the left are ready to take on those challenges. It's a difficult one to, to understand how we respond to. Yeah, I was going to say uh, your analysis on what the proletariat is going to do is a little bit more hopeful than me and Nana. We're a lot more humorous, I would say. We, I don't know. Uh, it feels like things are just so stagnant, on a standstill. And and we agree with everything you say, and we're just like kind of standing there and wondering, like, why isn't anything happening? You know, why, why aren't the proletariat, uh, uh, you know, organizing? And considering I'm in a party myself, it does seem like a reading group at times rather than uh, an actual party. And maybe maybe it's because of the pandemic, it's circumstances, but still, like, uh, I just think the state of the left and the proletariat is it's very I, I, stagnant in this country. Sorry, I just wanted to add on it something. Is. More or less. Um, concerning uh, everything both of you just mentioned, uh, it, was, it was specifically from the, the documentary Demand Tomorrow, where you kind of again argue succinctly near the end, well, not really necessarily near the end, but like throughout the video, that humanity, not not just uh, in Britain, like people in Britain, but like across the world, we've never really laid down and accepted our misery. And the misery that's coming is inordinate, as pretty much everyone knows whether they want to admit it or not consciously. And I just want to ask, with with that perspective and that, with that in mind, I mean, how do we go about? telling people before the misery you know this this mess of climate change hits us before we can do anything to stop it because it just does genuinely seem like people have passively internalized this the idea that this is it this is normal the, everything that we see all these structures of oppression are congenital it's categorically impossible to do without you know what i mean so that's that's just my question it's a difficult one um because i so the Obviously, what what I put in the films is the more optimistic part of my view. We, you know, it's it is an attempt to get people to to take action as much as it is an ex explanation yeah. of why um, that needs to happen. Um, and and I think the the big one of the biggest barriers is actually the viewpoint that that you're expressing that that like humanity does has normalised this descent. Um, because I don't think that people have normalised the dissent. I think people are stunned by the dissent. And that then in that being stunned and also being isolated, because we are all isolated at the moment as well, um, to one degree or another, um, then 
what happens is you perceive these awful, horrific developments, and because no one is pouring into the streets, then you we have to conclude that either no one cares or no one can take action. And 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 I think those conclusions are kind of shaky at best because all it takes to destroy that that kind of position is for one or two people to start like pouring into the streets. And so it's it's one of those things that I think, you know, we can look at um for example in Haiti right now we can see rebellions in in France they're still going quite strong. Um you know, the number of places across the globe we're seeing a revival of these movements and I think we need to point to them and support those demands. Um, Lenin in his analysis of imperialism expected the revolutionary wave which started in Russia to sweep through the imperialist world that didn't manifest, what happened instead was it started to sweep through the oppressed world and yes. we should be looking to the oppressed world today because that is where resistance is going to start first and it's in highlighting and supporting those struggles that we can persuade people in the imperialist nations where I think people are more convinced that nothing can change um, because of the heights of the media apparatus here. Um, but by highlighting those struggles in the oppressed world, we can show them that change yeah. is possible. And so that, and I think that, and also being consistent on precisely what we need, which is a proletarian state, which can then direct production toward being a restorative mode of production. Um, and highlighting that in the depth of the environmental crisis, um, which, yeah, is, is pretty horrific and in, in unfolding at ever rapider pace so highlighting those things but also in like not allowing people to give in to despair is the key I think yeah I was going to say I think Nana's favorite question he likes asking guests is why doesn't uh, western or proles have more revolutionary potential which is one we always ask ourselves uh, but I, I think it really falls down to ideology and how pervasive capitalist ideology well, sad, that's these, these people like more or less. working class people living within the imperial core a lot of them whether they you know implicitly or not uh, don't want to really give up the, the benefits of imperialism I mean look look to America for example it's, a, it's an example we always highlight in conversations outside of the pod all of these people what you know some of them genuinely are good intention but like they always say oh green new deal green new deal without mentioning the role of resource extraction and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, I've personally never seen it, but whenever someone mentions politician or just like a left-wing figurehead within America saying, oh, Green New Deal, they never talk about the role that the military plays and how massive the American military's carbon footprint is globally. I mean, it's got 800 military bases in 140 countries. Biden's currently constructing a new military base in Syria. Like that aspect of, uh, of climate change imperialism is always disassociated from a so-called Green New Deal. And you mentioned as well, James, in the in the the, the documentary We Demand Tomorrow. I can't remember the tax <laughs> figure concerning like percentage of resource extraction necessary to accommodate a Green New Deal, but I believe it's somewhere around the, the region of 110 to 111 percent. And no one mentions it. No one mentions it. So like yeah. global south, all so, the other shit is just rendered expendable to like the so-called Western left. No, no, I don't think that's. I, I would say it's liberals, more or less. I, I, I wouldn't put this on the doorstep True. of left. I mean, I, I think it's on the doorstep of people in the Labour Party and so on and so forth. Um, 
I do think there is a complicity within the social democratic left, right? Because they do it when they're in power. Um, the other thing is, yeah, I do, I do, but I do think that there is a broader anti-imperialist current in the contemporary left um, than we've seen in a while in the imperialist nations. Like younger people in particular are much more aware of imperialism than they ever have been, in my experience. Um, the problem I think we have now is that we're completely and utterly like so in Marx's understanding of the kind of proletariat right the industrial proletariat is revolutionary because it has its hands on production and it is part of capital right when it sells its labor it's part of capital um, now we see that deindustrialization has has swept through like most of the globe, not just the imperialist nations, but most of the globe, um, as machines have become more and more productive, you need less of an industrial proletariat. That section of the class manifestly can't play the leadership role anymore. And so we're needing to look at the dispossessed. And that comes with a much bigger concern in terms of organization, because the more you're dispossessed, the less means you have to organize yourself, right? Like the industrial proletariat was concentrated in a specific place, had the resources of being able to unionize. We don't really have that on the mass of the oppressed's mm. part anymore. And so the question of what organizations will look like is really difficult to answer. Similarly, I think when we come to kind of the questions around imperialist extraction, extreme imperialist kind of politics, um, the reason we don't see it so much in activist stuff is there's a really concrete problem here of like, under colonialism, um, it was much easier to organise to stop things because it was a much more direct form of rule that relied upon much broader sections of the population. The military is a specialised force that is divorced from most people' experience of a country in, in an imperialist nation, right? How do you organise within an imperialist nation to stop imperialism mm. in a practical sense is a really, really difficult question because most of the time it comes down to protesting outside embassies or banks, which don't actually stop if that makes sense. So there's, yeah. there's like concrete yeah, problems yeah, yeah. that manifest. It's not just the political problem, although the, the Western left is kind of chauvinist in a lot of ways um, and is dominated very much by chauvinistic social democrats. It's not just that. There's there's concrete problems of organisation, which I think are the more important part of the discussion among anti-imperialists um, because like we should be focusing on what we want to do. Um, Similarly, I think the, the final kind of point on this, rather, um, with regard to kind of the chauvinistic attitude of the working class within the imperialist nations in relation to the oppressed world, I think it's kind of a miss, it's an understanding, an understandable position that people in the oppressed world look at. Um, the oppression of their countries from the imperialist world and the passivity of the perceived passivity of the left in relation to that, um, or the working class in relation to that, and the imperialist nations, and get very angry about it. I think that polit from that political standpoint and that political kind of position, I can accept that criticism. I don't accept that criticism when it's deployed by the by um, labour aristocrats within the imperialist nations, right? Because there's a distinction between the crumbs of imperialism being used to allow you a 30 grand a year income, as a lot of the kind of labor aristocracy have. There's a distinction between that and p 
people's benefits being considered a privilege, like it is in relation to the oppressed world, right? But when a lot of these people say it in the imperialist world, they're not they're not in the oppressed world. They're not of that. And I think it's a line that the labour aristocracy in these countries use to make themselves sound more radical and erase the differences within the working class here. Um, because the way that the benefits system functions for disabled people, for example, is as, as an instrument of control, right? It's an operating part of people's oppression. It's better than what is available in the oppressed world, absolutely, where disabled people don't get any support apart from what can be provided by their families. But it's certainly it's certainly not the same as the labour aristocracy, who are the ones who have the political voice in this country, or the ones who have suppressed the movements in these countries, right? So the role that the labour aristocracy has played is the chauvinistic role. The rest of people, you know, the poorest sections of the working class who might have a relative privilege if viewed in blank comparison to the oppressed world, I don't think it's fair from the imperialist nations to accuse those people of being reactionary or traitors because most of the time they're just too focused on surviving surviving to do this. They don't have the resources. Mm. That needs to be said. Uh, so uh, I just want to... I quickly wanted to backtrack. Uh, it's, it's still within the question. Um, so you became a leftist within uh, the mm. Occupy movement, right? Yes. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, me and Nana are pretty new, so during Corbyn's era. So like, has class consciousness increased since that time to now, since the Occupy movement? Christ, yes. Uh, as people who weren't around for that time? Yes, very much so, okay. right? Like, when, when I was... Occupy had the consciousness of there's a 1% of the world who rule the rest of the world. Um, and that was the slogan, right? Racism didn't come into it. and Imperialism didn't come mm. into it. Um, all these things were not questions that that movement considered. It was dominated by white liberals, frankly. Uh, white, petty bourgeois liberals, mostly. Mm. Um, and, you know, it did... A, good thing in in the sense that it created a new generation of activists when no other movement was doing that um, but it, the same, it, mm. it was incredibly limited in, in terms of its outlook um, the left as we see today right um, most people are going to discuss communism, are going to discuss socialism um, they're going to discuss ideas like anti-imperialism mm. We see a lot more people actually studying these days than we did when I was starting to become political. Um, you see a lot more people kind of grounded in attempting to ground themselves in communist or class politics. So I do think that consciousness has risen. I think that it has. Um, I think that's a symptom of the crisis worsening and people not being able to kind of avoid some of these questions any longer. But I do think that consciousness has definitely increased, yeah. It's been hard to gauge for for the both of us who who haven't been around for the Occupy movement. So we've always wondered, like, are we playing catch up in terms of uh, like as proles in terms of getting back the uh, class con consciousness that we lost after the fall of the Soviet Union? Um, you know, after Francis Fukuyama said, you know, uh, this is the end of history. Have we internalized that? And now we're trying to catch up to pre-Soviet levels of class consciousness. Um, th that's one question that me and Nana have always like sort of wondered about, still... but it's it's probably not the easiest. I think we're still either. catching up on the 1990s. Um, that's before my time, um, but I still think we're playing catch up on before the before the Soviet Union. 
collapsed um, based on just like the organization sizes of that time um, and the number of organizations as well to be fair um, mm. so I still and, and, and the militancy of the working class in that period was, was a lot higher um, yeah. so we're still playing catch up on that but I think we're possibly at a stage comparable to like um, early socialist study groups which is, is good right that's, that's really positive it's, yeah. it's a lot further back than yeah. where we need to be yeah. But when I was starting to be politicized, there were a few organizations from the 1970s who'd clung on to a few really useful ideas and organizational structures, but had been completely hollowed out of, of like organizing potential because of political consciousness crises, really. Um, and that was it. That was that was what the Marxist mm-hmm. left was in this country. Now, the Marxist left is a huge range yeah. of different tendencies and ideas. Um, it's not very well organized by any metric and it's not very clear on a lot of things, but it exists at least. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that honestly is. Uh, not being around for that period of history, I didn't know it was that bad. I always thought the left was like this for a while. I, uh, It's surprising to, I mean, to how, sort of understand I mean, how we've actually gotten better. Like James said, how, the, how could yeah. we not? Because a lot of people including myself when i was a social democrat and obviously i passively internalized a lot of bourgeois propaganda concerning oh you know communism and socialism just looking at the state of the world and the climate crisis that's looming on us and this rising tide of fascism it's either i you know stick to social democracy which doesn't have the tools or the means to solve the world's problems and provide liberation for working and oppressed people or I become a Marxist it, it honestly just reminds me of this tweet that I saw the other day which is like once you study enough of history you either become a Marxist or you become a liar and that's honestly <laughs> yes quite <laughs> that's genuinely how I feel about it like yeah I mean I mean, what quickly radicalized me just, just as a personal an- an- anecdote was just seeing how they treat like, a mild social democrat in Corbyn and I'm like if this is mm. how they do that, then we're not going to get any change. And then I read Lenin and the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, Corbyn was the last chance this country had. Chief. He was a radical Democrat as well. He wasn't even radical. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there's an important point to make here as well. The end of social democracy is the beginning of fascism. Yep. Um, and I think you know, it's if we look at fascism as an historical process rather than a definite form of rule, where in the beginning moments of imperialism heading in that direction, right, where it's ruled out any possibility of like a meaningful redistribution of wealth, um, even on the mild social democratic plane that Corbyn was pursuing, um, and I cannot stress how mild he was as well, <laughs> like. You know, we're talking about like a corporation tax increase that was, I believe, one percent more than what the Tories did yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite mad. Um, no, I think. But at the same time, the you know, the the crisis itself is is what sets the terms of our struggle, and it's just going to deepen. There's nothing they can do to resolve it. So. As bad as things seem, 
the people are being prepared for. You know, the, the kind of left that we need is being prepared through this process. As long as it I takes. mean, I, I, at least there's more leftists right now than there were all writers. Because that's that was my uh, political sphere when I sort of got into politics. Was just there were so many alt writers online. That's all it was. Now it's a lot more balanced, which you know, which is a low standard to have. But yeah, I think that's where we are right now. It's very online left. But at least we exist. Yeah, we exist, which is better than not existing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're trying. We're trying. My group's trying. Um, there's only so much you can do in a pandemic. I feel like, but um, it's it's definitely gone uh, a lot better. You you gotta remember as well, like the ideological stranglehold of the bourgeoisie. Honestly, so it's it's a lot difficult for. Um, I mean, it's not not a lot. It's very difficult for us to really just help organize and raise people's class consciousness. Yeah, I think. I think even like right-wing people, like super right-wing people, I don't mean like rich, I just mean, you know, uh, people who are on the right, but, you know, uh, have the same class as us. I think even they understand that there's something wrong, more or less, in terms of the society that they're living in, in terms of the wealth disparity that they're living in, but they just don't necessarily have the tools to understand why things are the way it is, more or less it's always immigrants for them. Um, that that's always the biggest problem with fascism because it's such a it's such a quick theory. Like there's not much understanding other than it's immigrants, it's the outsiders. Uh, yeah, it's it's always more appealing uh, uh, for the majority to be fascist than you know to actually be socialist. It doesn't have any ideological coherence as well, like fascism. It just moves from one thing to another, one scapegoat to another. No, you have to. You have to, really. And it's like something I'm like studying as well. Like, there's a great historical continuity with such a such an aspect of fascism. Looking at Italy and the Second World War, like a module which is like, yeah, it's, you know, just again, like a personal anecdote. You know, it's helped me understand a little bit more, but it's also just annoying because I have a liberal teaching me, and you know, can't help. Like every chance he gets, this motherfucker just slanders Lenin, and his, his hero is a barber. Like when he said that, I literally had to stop myself from cackling. <laughs> I am sorry, comrades, but I'm going to have to sort of wrap up now. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah. Thank you for joining us, by the way, man. Uh, we really enjoyed this chat, and it was super insightful talking to you. Honestly, uh, very different. No problem. Yeah, really thanks, cool. man. You're very different to our political views. We're a lot more Duma. Uh, than you. So, uh, thanks for the analysis and thanks for your time, man. I, I think if I was, I think if I was any more doomer than I am, I think I would have given in by this point. It's, uh, <laughs> to be honest, uh, I've been on the left for about nearly ten years now, and it's it, it would be yeah, exhausting. That's, uh, that's <laughs> pretty wonderful identity. Uh, yeah, uh, one so second, much. thank you, man. Uh, I would love to have you again if you're ever available, but. Uh, Thank you for joining us, and we'll uh, talk to you some other time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm happy to come back on. Um, and thank you very much for having me on as well. Yep. I'm gonna See you. shoot now. But... Sorry. Thank you. Tara. Bye. Bye. Okay. Uh, Nana, do you wanna?
do you want to end the pod? Yeah, I'll just do the usual uh, ending. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everyone. This has uh, been another episode of Comrades from Fiction. We hope you enjoyed it just as much as we did, and we'll hope to see you again in the future. Yep. Peace out. Straight from the can, it tasted so bland I asked a lass to pass me a glass Of Ingalls' conditions of the working class Right away they dragged me to the committee To explain my un-American activity They're gonna see they made a mistake If they'd only let me play my mixtape I'm not partial to the marshal Or the plutocrats in their beaver hats And the fascists have the outfits But I don't care for the outfits What I care about is music And the communists have the music I hear a melody And just as suddenly I know Who I'm supposed to be I don't need a rationale To sing the international I only need to plug in the headphone jack So I can listen to my backing track I'm not jealous of the zealous Or anarchics with guitar picks And the fascists have their outfits But I don't